On today's episode of Before You Kill Yourself, we have Zach Blakeney. And we talk about so many things. We talk about all the things. We, we talk about his sex addiction, his uh, a, a battle with anxiety, uh, his struggle with suicidality and how he overcame that, uh, his breakup, his divorce, finding acceptance, dealing with attachment, uh, the all or nothing mindset. Uh, and we also even talk about uh, how important the Mediterranean diet is uh, towards mental health. Uh, we even get a little bit into like energy healing from Reiki and, uh, getting Manny Petties. That's right. Two men talking about getting Manny Petties and, and the joy of that. We even talk about uh, gratitude and how to show it. A lot of people don't realize exactly what it means to be grateful. And so we go, we delve deep into the gratitude of that. We talk about Impulse control and how to reduce that, books to read, the importance of pain and how that accelerates your desire to change. We talk about how to trust your feelings and be vulnerable within a relationship. And then we even talk about the radius of love. So this is an episode you want to listen to from beginning to end. And if you haven't done yet, go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. You know, I've been in the trenches mentally, emotionally, physically with the feelings of, of feeling alone and feeling like a burden. And I've, I've constructed and, and, and developed coping skills and self-soothing techniques that I want to share with you and also personalize to whatever your story is and, 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 and helping you deal with your traumas and tragedies and, and turning those into trajectories. Let's get to tomorrow together. With that said, let's get into the episode. Zach Blakeney, I'm excited to have you on. Um, you are a performance coach, a transformation coach. You help people across the world uh, prioritize their health and wellness uh, with quick, simple, and sustainable solutions. Can, can you talk to us about what some of those solutions are. And the reason why I'm excited to have you on is because eating disorders are rampant amongst people who have attempted or completed suicide. And one of the things that you work on is mindset. And, and part of, uh, you know, uh, they're at the root of an eating disorder for a lot of people is their mindset around food, around their body, around what success is, around the meaning of life. And so we, we do, and I understand like your specialty is not specifically eating disorders, but we are talking about mindset and transforming the way people think about themselves, the way they think about life. And, and so I'm excited to hear how you help people optimize not only their mental health, but their physical health. Yes, yes. And it's, I, I don't really have like what you said that, you know, an upfront experience, uh, consistently with eating disorders, but I have, uh, in my past and still currently do coach some bodybuilding competitors and with bodybuilding, you know, you get into a very all or nothing strict diet. And once a lot of bodybuilders are released, you know, it's very difficult uh, to not binge eat and binge eating is, is the result of being malnourished and not having some nutrients that they had like sugar and carbs and things like this. And then also, 
uh, it gets compounded as the body, you know, gets to one extreme level of looking almost unrealistically, you know, godlike to putting on some fat and the body dysmorphia that comes with it. And then the depression that comes with the binge eating. And it's very much a, a cycle. And it's actually one of the things that truly started to spark my mindset coaching was I realized that, you know, I had a coaching package that, you know, set somebody up for success to the show. But really the most crucial part was their recovery or their reverse from the show to maintain this healthy lifestyle that they that they actually obtain during prep. Like it's not healthy to get to, you know, low body fat percentages. It's not healthy necessarily to put your body through these extreme measures, but you're eating healthy food. You're going to the gym. You're doing things that are healthy practices. So when this started to happen, I realized that I needed an extra four weeks of coaching afterwards. And it gave me a lot of insight into exactly what you were talking about with, you know, how, you know, stressful environments, how expectations of how we think we're supposed to look and also what we think other people perceive us as what we are supposed to look can influence stress, anxiety. And once we get into this, this state, this fight or flight state, we've now lost almost all of our critical thinking skills. We've lost what it is to activate our prefrontal cortex, which is the CEO of our brain, right? It is the thing that says, you should do this, or you shouldn't do this. And we're not, we're not activating this portion of the brain, it's almost impossible to not act with the limbic system, that reptilian part of the brain that is the emotional you know, part, it's the one that stimulates our emotions and our thoughts. So what I realized, and again, when I started to work with my competitors post-show, was that it was a, like what you were describing. It is a compounded problem. There are multiple things that are happening, perception of self, uh, perception of others, uh, expectations. Uh, and, and a lot of these things were based off of you know uh, practices of, of just being in an unrealistic environment of what contest prep was. So then I started to look and say, okay, what are we going to do here? And, and also with my own internal battles that I had faced, um, I was able to use a lot of the practices when I went to see, I've seen an anxiety therapist, I've seen a sex addiction therapist that I'd love to dive into after this. And I used these practices of impulse control because that was step number one. Okay, you need to understand that the impulses that your brain is creating thoughts of you doing something is not actually what you need to do. <laughs> it was it was a revolutionary thing where I realized that my thoughts are not me and your thoughts are not you. You have the choice to choose which thoughts you believe and embody to be actually you. So I used a trick, and the trick is the observer. And I'm sure you're familiar with it being a, a psychologist that, you know, a, an observer uh, is the being, is actually you, where you, you can decide, you know, where, what route you want to go on and what thought you want to follow and chase. And a lot of this comes more from experience because I can sit all I want and tell somebody preventatively, here is what's going to happen to you if you do X, Y, and Z. And they'll say, oh, yeah, no worries. I'm just going to eat a couple of things, you know, get going, and, you know, I'll be fine. 
But then the experience of losing your discipline for a week or two, and then also having the emotional reaction is truly what the, the moment that people say, oh, this is happening to me. Now there's some awareness, right? This is happening to me. So I find to, to actually get somebody to, to realize that they need to change from a certain spot is two things. One, you need the painful experience. You have to learn from it. Now, it doesn't need to be prolonged. It does not need to go forever or, or for six weeks or eight weeks or 10 weeks, but you need it. And then also you need to use that as motivation then to now start taking in the new information and learn the new information that you need to be able to battle this certain thing. So does that make sense? Because I kind of wired through a lot of different <laughs> ways. But the main tactic is, you know, realizing that you need to take a step back and not attach yourself to the thoughts and that you have the control and you have the power to be able to choose which route you go. When you say take a step back, sometimes when you're in it, right, when that mm -hmm. when that flood of anxiety, when that flood of impulse uh, hits us, just like right now, I just ate a whole bunch of cookies. And, oh. you know, when, when that hits, it's hard when you're in it to take a step back. And when you take that step back, are, are there things that you're saying to yourself? Is there a thought? Is there... Uh, you know, it makes sense to even physically step back because sometimes even when you're under the impulse, you, uh, you know, you're aware of what you're doing and why you're doing it. And for some reason, uh, you still continue to do it. Um, can you walk us? Can you talk us through that? Yes. Yes. And that's thank you for bringing that up. So it takes, you know, activating the prefrontal cortex and. You can activate this in a few different ways. Now, mindfulness, mindfulness is a, a beautiful, there's so many just different beautiful mindfulness techniques and you know, mindfulness is just bringing uh, your being into the present moment. Uh, now, something that I, that I think is the most powerful thing to do is actually gratitude. So gratitude as well, when we look at the physiological brain and how it works, you know, gratitude is a prefrontal cortex emotion. It is something that is only stimulated through this, this thought, right, of, of I am grateful for X. So a lot of people think that when you're, when you're saying, you know, I'm grateful for being alive, I'm grateful for the ground that I walk on, that these are just, you know, something to make you feel good. In actuality, it can stimulate the prefrontal cortex, which is what you need, right, to actually make the decision. So, again, brain activity in this regard can be then stimulated through this gratitude or even mindfulness. So in this regard, mindfulness, you're maybe you're spiraling about eating Taco Bell or whatever, you know, ice cream, cookies, you know, whatever it might be. And all you're thinking is this about this and you're not actually present. So a wonderful mindfulness technique is just breath, right? It's, they call it breath meditation or just focusing on your breath for a minute. My favorite mindfulness technique, which is one that I've been employing often, including prior to this podcast, is alternate nostril breathing. Now, alternate nostril breathing is powerful in so many different ways and can be used in so many different ways. But simply breathing through your left nostril, imagining the breath going into actually your brain, almost like the oxygen fills your brain, breathing out the right nostril, 
back in through the right nostril and out the left. So this is a repetitive thing that you can do for, you can feel the benefit of it maybe in five or 10 seconds. If you do it for a minute, you've almost completely forgotten what you were talking about. You also reduced your sympathetic nervous system, the fight or flight, which is where these thoughts and these impulses are coming from, uh, increased your parasympathetic nervous system, the calm, the, the relaxation, and by doing so, increasing your critical thinking skills. So if I were going to be like, okay, somebody's having an impulse to eat cookies and they don't want to eat cookies because, you know, you found out through eating a bunch of cookies that you feel guilty afterwards and that guilt is kind of makes you feel bad about yourself. And, you know, that's, that's kind of the loop we find ourselves in sometimes sitting back, doing two things, saying, you know what, I'm grateful that I have the option to eat cookies, <laughs> maybe doing a breathing technique like alternate nostril breathing. And then the third step for me is because you can lean on experience to know that if I eat these cookies, I'm going to feel guilty. Ask a simple question of yourself. If I eat these cookies, will I be happy? Will I feel good? And if the answer to that is no, then that is the space that you live in. You take that no, and then you move on and you do something else. Now, the, the, we know that our brain doesn't let us forget things. So you move on <laughs> and let's say you're doing something else and then those cookies come back into play. Well, to retrain the brain, it doesn't take one time. It takes multiple times. And that is what inner work is. That is what the work of, of really truly reducing anxiety, stress, and feeling and choosing happiness. When I say happiness is a choice, this is the choice. This is the choice that that space is in. And once you make that choice, you have to continue to make that choice for it to become a habit. And then now we actually are starting to align what I call aligning the intention that you have from your soul, from your heart into your actions of your physical world. You know, that that speaks to so many things, what you were saying, because it's true. It's like if you if you think it through, then you realize it's not going to make you happy. And I think. One of the things that, you know, I got from uh, playing sports is, you know, not also not to wait until you're in it to practice it. You have to visualize what you're going to do uh, uh, it, it periodically so that when you are in those situations, you remember what to do. Because often what happens is, um, you know, you're you're on a you're doing you're eating good, quote unquote, whatever good means. Mm -hmm. uh, and and then you kind of forget the tools and techniques for those moments when uh, you do get that flare up of anxiety or, or the, the impulse uh, does start to take over. And because you haven't been practicing the alternate nostril breathing, you haven't been practicing the deep breath, you haven't been practicing your gratitude, you forget in that moment. And, and then your, your limbic system, which is full of, so many uh, past histories of, of behaviors and habits and routines, it just dominates and takes over. So, mm -hmm. you know, w when you say it, it takes multiple times, what I'm saying is don't wait until you're in it to practice it. That's why when you go to like uh, therapy, as you talk about, they give mm -hmm. you homework. Like you, you do it at home so that you can practice uh, so that when you're in the situation, you don't wait till you get into a fight to remember how to fight, like you, you have to practice before you step in a ring. So, uh, yeah, 
Uh, I was just going to say, I think it's great that you're, you're saying that because it, it almost, it leaves me just to speak briefly, maybe briefly, I don't know, we'll see what happens, about visualization um, and living life intentionally. You know, a lot of people, they wake up and they are just letting life happen to them. And when you are feel as if you are being controlled by outside forces or, you know, you have to do this and you have to do that, you're just, you know, following what other people either expect of you or tell you to do or, you know, there, there's a switch when you start to live life intentionally. And one of those things that you can do intentionally to increase your performance is the visualization, is visualizing exactly how you want maybe a big meeting to go down, or maybe it's just a conversation with a loved one that you know is going to have some sort of pivotal, you know, result for you or for the other person and visualizing exactly how you would like it to appear. And not only the vision isn't just, oh, I'm thinking about it. The vision is see the person's face, try and even imagine their facial expressions. Think about exactly what you would say to them. And the key here with visualization that I found in my own personal life is that a lot of times when we visualize something, our brain, which is already knowing that you're thinking about something that's uncomfortable, will start to send you messages why you shouldn't do it, right? You're either, you're not going to be able to do it this well, don't do that, you, we can go into worthiness, you know, why do you think you could do that anyways? And, and then it just floods it. But when you visualize and then you feel gratitude as if it already has happened, you are now retraining, you, you reprogram your subconscious because your subconscious does not know the difference between the visualization and if it actually happened. And that key is gratitude because once you employ gratitude, again, now it is practice. It's true practice now because now your brain thinks you've already done it and thinks you've already done it well. And that sets you up for success with whatever it is you're trying to do. You know what I love about that is, you know, I've because you mentioned not only being grateful for what you have, but like you said, being grateful is as if the things that you want, you already have saying not saying, hey, uh, uh, I, I wish I had a million dollars, but saying, hey, I'm grateful for the million dollars that are in my checking account. I mean, we're talking about money, but, you know, I'm grateful for my health and that I've, I'm surviving this corona quarantine or whatever you know so many people spend so much time wishing for things but uh the most of the your energy should be in the being grateful for the things that you do have yeah because you're right it does reinforce those behaviors those thoughts and it reinforces the actions that will lead you there uh, such a such a powerful thing i'm I, i'm i'm still learning about this idea of gratitude because uh, so many people I talk to talk about how they run out of things to be grateful for. And, and that just lets me know that they don't understand the full scope of, of uh, gratitude and, and, and being grateful for things. Because it's not just for yourself, it's for other people. Be grateful that, you know, a family is at home eating dinner, uh, you know, amicably or that there are school systems and that there are paved roads. Like, it doesn't just have to be for you. We can be grateful for uh, our country, our neighbors, and the world around us. We can expand that scope of gratitude. Yeah, and what's, what's really cool, and I, I've come across the same, especially right now, 
is that you know the, the brain studies and scans show when somebody is hooked up and we're watching the activity of the brain that the sentence does not need to be completed by simply saying, I am grateful for blank, the word grateful starts to switch you into the prefrontal cortex. You don't have to finish the sentence. So even when people think that they have nothing to be grateful for, they can literally just say the sentence without the end result and still get the switch into the, pre into the prefrontal cortex that allows them to get out of that fight or flight, you know, state. That's fascinating. Um, there's a book, uh, The Upward Spiral, uh, the, it's a, the Neuroscience on Depression, and he mentioned the same thing, that, you know, you don't, you know, part of it, there's a research that shows that you don't, like the best way to enjoy a movie is to actually not even finish the movie. Um, because what happens is your brain ends up completing the movie and it, and it, it, it actually gives you a better ending than uh, whatever they came up with. So a lot of times my friends get mad at me because I walk out of movies all the time. I'm constantly <laughs> walking. And I mean, I don't do that with every movie, obviously. But there are a lot of movies like, like a Marvel comic movie or something that's just kind of a popcorn movie. I'm always yeah. walking out of those movies. I walk out halfway through, and then in my head, I'm like, ah, he probably dies, and they get married, or whatever. Uh, and it is. It's true. It's like, you don't feel, like, when you complete something, like a movie or a book, you have multiple emotions. There's that uh, satisfying, uh, uh, you're sat you feel satisfied that you completed something, so you get that dopamine rush of getting something done. But then there's also the anxiety of like, what am I going to do next? And yeah. I realize that that anxiety is mitigated when I uh, stop halfway through or three fourths of the way through or whatever, or just like extend it uh, for, for longer periods of time. So uh, I, I hope I haven't ruined movies for anybody, but. Well, I mean, I you know, I don't know if you were a fan of Game of Thrones, but I wish I would have stopped watching that one about halfway through the last season because the ending, in my opinion, was the most disappointing ending. Oh, it was the worst. <laughs> it was the worst ending. It was. I was like, oh, oh, you you made me wait two years, two years for this. I was so upset. I, I was like, the budget must have ran out. It was a it was a COVID virus hit something. It was so sad. It was so sad, and oh, and it was man. the most consistent show ever. Yeah, and then to it, have that just uh, fall apart like that, like I, man, I'm, I'm I'm mad, and now and now I'm now I'm and I got to breathe, now I got to do the nostril, <laughs> that uh, that alternate nostril breathing, nostril just breathing, take it in. <laughs> <laughs> the the um, you know, I was looking at your Instagram, and on there you have uh, you, you talk about self care. And I, I forget, man, I forget the guy's name, but it was a, a few episodes back when my buddy was talking about how uh, he goes to get manicures and pedicures. And it's <laughs> just to tell himself that he, you know, to, I mean, one, it feels good. And it also mm -hmm. just to reinforce the importance of self-care, as you talked about, being a super giver uh, is, is about giving back to yourself. Talk to us about that Manny Petty you got, man. Like, why, why, why are you? 
<laughs> well, I'll say this. Uh, it was my girlfriend's birthday. Oh, of course. Of course that, she's that a is, scapegoat. Yeah, it couldn't be, be your reason. idea. <laughs> uh, no, yeah, I, I don't normally do something like that, but I don't not enjoy it. Uh, it was fun for sure. And, and really, when I think about, you know, doing something like that and, and it, it, it can translate into really anything uh, that I call a form of stillness. Right? so stillness is a mani pedi or stillness as easy as going for a 20 minute walk and disconnecting from everything. Uh, and it's a lot less expensive going that way as well. So, you know, I, I enjoy doing that type of thing. Um, I, I enjoy going to like, you know, the other things, infrared sauna. Uh, I do a float spa, which are these, you know, deprivation float tanks, uh, meditation daily. You know, these these things, it doesn't, the, the, I guess what I'm saying is that the source or the medium in which you do something for yourself does not matter. It's that it's important to you you know that it refreshes your mind and it brings you this peace, this happiness that you're looking for. And, and that's just so incredibly important in today's world because today's world is filled with pressure and, you know, to perform. It's filled with you must go as fast as possible to catch this person or this person and you know, that is where a lot of our stress, a lot of our anxiety as a, as a nation or even as the world is housed, um, at least I wouldn't say the world. I'm not going to put the world into this. I would say the United States of America, a lot of us are filled with this, this pressure-filled uh, environment, right? So like whatever you can do to disconnect temporarily will allow you to connect more powerfully with the people that you love the most. Well, you know, I never thought about it like that, man. That was such a part. I'm going to be getting more uh, manicures and pedicures because <laughs> I, I, I was just like you, Zach. Like I, I went with my girlfriend, you know, for her for her birthday. Yeah. And uh, I was like, oh, I, I understand why women do this. It, it allows you to kind of, you know, just check out and be centered uh, and, and be present and kind of like when I get a massage, you know, is it, yes, it's costly. But what I find is. When I'm getting massaged, my thoughts expand exponentially. Mm-hmm. Like the things that I think about, the visions that I have, the the goals I want to set, the impact I want to uh, I want to have on the on the world and on people, and I think about the podcast and the listeners and my health. Like it just makes me want to double and triple down on all those things, and I have nothing but just amazing. Uh, energy and, and, and visualizations that take place uh, unless she's hurting me. And then I'm like, oh, shit, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> I'm not paying for this or what? But but typically so have you ever done Reiki. Have you ever had somebody do a Reiki uh, energetic practice on you? I have. Can you talk about that a little bit for the listeners who, who don't know what that is? Sure. And I'm, I'm not, you know, well versed in it, but I have Reiki done on me um, and I understand what it is. But essentially, you know, your energetic system that is your body, you know, that's represented by chakras and these chakras, although it is a Eastern philosophy, um, all of these chakras match up with where you're going to feel energy most prevalent. 
So what a Reiki master will do is will align or um, what would I say? It's not really line. It's it's balancing, excuse me, balancing these energies that might be off in these certain areas on your body. So when you were telling me, that's why it brought up to me is that when you were telling me that like, you know, when you're getting massaged that certain areas uh, or that when you're getting massaged that you're, you have visions and everything else, it's very likely that these certain areas are actually where you house different thoughts about maybe your past, maybe the future. You know, for me, my third eye, I just actually had Reiki done two days ago from from <laughs> a woman that works with me. And I actually, I love her plutonically because she's like a sister to me, but she does Reiki. And so she was, you know, doing her energy over my third eye, which is right in between your two eyes, right above it on the forehead. And, and you know, she said she could see all these different flashes of everything that's going on. It was very representative. It was representing me right now because again, we've been thrown into this new societal environment and I am, you know, figuring out and navigating through how I can help people the best I can in this environment. So that's, that's really what Reiki is, is it is a way to balance your energies in each one of these chakra areas on your body and a lot of time when it's being done, it will stimulate different thoughts, maybe even thoughts that have been suppressed, you know, of childhood or uh, for me, you know, my father came up two days ago and I don't have a bad relationship with my father, but I hadn't, you know, it wasn't like I was actively trying to think about it. It was stimulated by the area of the body that she was working on. Um, and for anybody who, for myself, like I said, I've done the, the therapy in which, you know, I talk, I've gone to an anxiety therapist, I've done cognitive behavioral therapy, but I found it to be helpful for sure. But I have found that energetic healing for me has moved me forward faster and, and also will rebalance my energy, my own anxiety, my own fears faster as well. Well, you know, what I also realize is, um, you know, going back to when you said, I am grateful for, and you don't have to complete that sentence. What I found is that when I book any type of self-care session, whether I book a massage, whether I book energy healing, just the process of booking it, of going, of, of finding and setting a time and setting a schedule, my, it improves my energy tenfold. You know, even before I, I've, I've, I've laid down to get the massage, I'm already in a better mood because because it's that anticipation of knowing that whatever I'm going through now, whatever the struggle is or the challenges are, like um, there's going to be a moment for me. And, and I think a lot of anxiety is built up around, am I going to get some time to myself? Like, am I just going to be, you know, just, uh, you know, putting out for less for for everything and everyone else is am I going to is anybody going to take care of me? And you have to schedule. You have to be intentional and be proactive in taking care of yourself. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that is when we go back to, you know, our society, um, I truly believe that we're programmed to think about others before ourselves. And it is it is programmed in us that this is the way to be, the, that be giving to others 
And I, I agree that giving to others is very fulfilling. I mean, service is something that you do. It's something that I do. It's, you know, at the foundation of what I believe to be true happiness and fulfillment, at least for myself. But also, I have a theory, and I'm going to share it with you now. But think about Christmas. Think about Christmas. Christmas has now turned into this huge, stressful, anxious, I got to buy gifts for my for my immediate family, and now I have to awkwardly try and buy a gift for my cousin that's coming to the family reunion that I haven't seen in a while because I'm getting a present for somebody else. And, da, 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 da. and it, it becomes this thing where like you're just constantly thinking about other people. And that is why a lot of people feel a lot of stress and anxiety the most during the holidays. It's not about you have to go see your parents. It's not about you have to see family or that. You actually most likely truly want to see them. It's the environment that you have to go to to see them. So think about Christmas in this way. What if on Christmas of 2020, everybody gave the one thing that they wanted to themselves? I guarantee you the frequency and vibration of the world would increase with so much happiness and joy that they would reduce that stress. So that's what I've noticed that even at work, you are working for somebody else. Even if you're an entrepreneur, you're working for somebody else to help somebody else. And then that's the fallacy in it all is that we do all these things, we're focused on everybody else, and then through that process over time, we lose touch with who we are. We lose touch with what we want. And by doing that, resentment, bitterness, anger, you know, all these low-level emotions start to embody into our being, preventing us from being the person that we want to be. Man, so I love that idea. That's, that's exactly, you know, just even saying it got me excited. I was like, yeah, Christmas should be me buying the things I want for myself and then unwrapping it in front of other people. <laughs> yes. Again, get gets rid of get rid of your anxiety of what you got to buy for somebody else. It gets rid of theirs of what you got to buy for them. And guess what? Everybody would be in the present moment and really enjoy what it's supposed to be, which is I get to see my family. I don't have to work for a little while and I get to just relax and not have to worry about anything. And it should be on neutral territory. Like it should, you shouldn't have to go home to the place where all the things that happened to you yeah. happened. It should, yeah. it should be at like some lodge in Pacoima or something like that. I, I, Bitcoin is right. probably not a good place. But. Let's let's petition for free lodging during Christmas too. All the hotels, Airbnb, you got to listen up now. You're giving it up for free. That's our gift. You know, going back to uh, Reiki and you talking about you know getting massaged or getting body work on in different parts, how it unlocks different parts of our minds and ideas and energy. Um, there's a book called Body Keeps the Score, and it, it talks about how, like, when we have certain traumas that have happened to us, how it gets locked up in certain parts of our bodies. Uh, for some people, it's their arms, it's their hands, their legs, their stomach, uh, their head. Uh, it's, for some people, it could be their entire body, um, their ears. And he says that one of the main remedies for helping to unlock um, uh, these traumas is movement because a lot of times what happens is we have these traumas and we're triggered and we kind of freeze. We kind of stop doing what we're doing. We kind of freeze, not just physically, but mentally and emotionally. And, uh, instead of expanding and growing and, 
Um, but specifically, he mentions yoga as a form of movement therapy and unlocking the traumas that have happened uh, in our body. So when, when you talked about how Reiki uh, can help do that for people who may be struggling with mobility and movement or whatever, Reiki could be another uh, alternative. So it just, just brought that to mind. Yes, yes, for sure. Just in my own experience two days ago, I, I hold a lot of tension in my, my traps and my neck. You know, a lot of Americans do. Um, so that's definitely where I'm at. And, you know, there was no deep tissue. There was that's not what Reiki is, really. It's it's more um, I like to describe Reiki as like, you know, when you're a kid or maybe this has happened recently where like somebody's putting a finger next to your eye. They're not touching you but you feel like they're touching you. That is the energy. That is the energy, energy between two. And if there's a Reiki master, they can manipulate this, this energy, which is, this is what life is with this. We are just an energetic beings and an energetic world. Um, so yes, yeah, so I, I absolutely agree that Reiki and then also yoga. Um, I, I have a personal goal to be a consistent yoga practicer. I find myself doing it for about six to eight weeks at a time. And then, losing touch with that goal. But every time that I am enthralled and into yoga, just twice a week, my body feels amazing. My sleep improves, um, which leads me to wonder in my own mental process why I ever stop. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, so that's a, that's a great thing. I mean, that's, what's fascinating is like, why do we stop doing the things that feel so good to us? And I think part of it is, uh, like you said, like a, a disruption, in routine and mm -hmm. we end up, um, so, you know, sometimes what I find that, you know, uh, when we talk about emotions, people usually talk about, uh, quote unquote, negative emotions being like anger, shame, guilt, embarrassment. But one of the things that throws me off my routine is excitement. Sometimes I get so excited about my new routine, about doing yoga, about, uh, whatever it is that, that I'm pursuing that it disrupts my sleep and then my sleep gets thrown off and then my daily routine the next day gets thrown off and then it becomes this vicious cycle or there's an injury or uh, something. But, but excitement is one of those emotions that I'm, I'm learning to manage because the excitement can very easily turn into a little bit of uh, uh, not mania is a, is a, is a, strong word but like a, a maybe hypomania and then i can't it's almost like yeah. the, the day the first day before school you know where you can't sleep and you got your clothes laid out and things like that and i find that when i when am i uh, excited about a new routine or um uh like i got i think 17 or 18 days straight of meditation right now and I, i'm get, i feel myself get excited and then mm -hmm. you know i uh, it breaks the routine. Yeah, that's that's amazing, man. Um, you know, the meditation that I practice is a mantra-led meditation, or um, more commonly known as transcendental meditation. And it's, you know, one, it's a wonderful remedy if you do get a bad night's sleep because it's five times deeper rest for your brain than, than sleep. Because you know, when we sleep. Our body is at rest, but our brain is very active. Uh, and when we meditate, at least with transcendental, uh, your brain is at rest um, and your body is still awake. But, um, you know, it's just it's an amazing thing to, for me 
meditation was the foundation for uh, a transformation from who I was uh, to who I am now. And, you know, anybody who has been along my life and in that lifelong uh, battle that I was prior to this of, of addiction and, and lying and I was deceitful, I was, you know, manipulative. It was, you know, everything that honestly comes along with an addictive personality uh, changed drastically uh, just through meditation and, and another practice. And maybe this will help you with the, the sleep thing was just journaling. You know, when I'm excited, if I'm anxious about something or excited and truly you feel it in the same area of your body, if we're going back to the chakras, the sacral chakra that is, you know, just below your, your belly button where this excitement is felt or anxiousness is felt, um, just writing it down, pin the paper, what you're excited about or what you're anxious about gives your brain that temporary relief. Um, so a lot of times when I find that I'm anxious or excited, uh, before trying to go to sleep, I'll, I'll just spend five minutes, you know, the thoughts, a lot of times the writing doesn't even make sense because your thoughts don't make sense when you're really excited about something. It's just kind of splurting out all the things you want to do. Um, but it really brought me uh, and brings me some peace prior to going to bed. So, yeah, you know, I've, I started, uh, writing down, uh, one thing that is bothering me, I got this uh, from uh, Norman Raymond, who's been on the, uh, the podcast. He's on the second episode. Uh, and then uh, three things that I'm grateful for. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also uh, one thing that I'm looking forward to. So the gratitude helps to keep me present. And then the thing that I'm looking forward to has me thinking about the future and keeping my almost like keeping your eye on the ball of like, you know, this is why we're getting out of bed tomorrow. Uh, and then this is, this is why we do what we're, what we're about to do. Um, you know, you talked about your, uh, addictions. Can you talk to us about the, uh, sex addiction and then what were the, and I, I use cognitive behavioral therapy for that. Uh, I use the cognitive behavioral therapy um, and then, excuse me, but I think it's acceptance, ACT therapy, ACT. I can't remember exactly what it stands for. Um, yeah, that, that was more to be able to navigate through the divorce that uh, followed um, me and after I had basically come out about the pornography addiction that was plaguing me since I was about 14 years old. So I was born in 86, um, 33 now. So when I was 14 or 15, um, you know, I was basically on the cusp of when AOL dial up started to become like, you know, broadband internet or whatever. It was faster. And then video started coming into the internet. And, uh, yeah, I was a unsupervised, uh, child with a computer in a basement. So when I was 14, 15, I, I let my thoughts and, um, you know, push me to looking at a lot of video pornography and, you know, that was 2000. So there really wasn't any research about what video pornography or the prolonged use of it would do to your brain with neuroplasticity until 2009 or 2010. Uh, so this became a consistent thing for me. And with that consistency and with my inability to control my impulse about this, it became a multiple time a day consistent thing. And then over time, um, I was physically, I had physically changed uh, my body's reaction to what it took to be turned on 
sexually aroused by a female. So I was having performance issues uh, when I was 22, 23. Uh, you know, basically the first relationship out of college, I was reliant on, you know, Viagra. And at that time, it didn't even work half the time. Right. So I had completely just rewired my brain. And I didn't know what really I was I was doing, but I did like so my my intuition, which I ignored <laughs> for a very long time, you know, was telling me, you know, this is this is the problem. And then my brain was just telling me that um, there was something wrong with me and I would always be this way and I could never change. And, you know, that was painful. And that's and, that uh, all or nothing thinking that you talked yeah. about with bodybuilders. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and this was a, it was a problem. And when my relationship ended, uh, from my college sweetheart, you know, I had a little bit of a hiatus before I met my ex-wife. And when I met with my ex-wife, um, of course it was still an issue, but you know, the, the connection between the two of us was so strong that I, I it almost, I felt like I was cured. So after a year or so, that feeling of being cured, once, you know, a relationship starts to hit the longer stage of what it means to actually truly love somebody, uh, you know, it started to come back in and it came back with, uh, quite a vengeance. I would say it was like, you know, you stop doing something and, you know, then you want it all at once. And then the same, you know, repetitive behavior, uh, the same loop, the same habits came into play. And then I started to try and hide it from her. Uh, lied about it, lied about activity, um, you know, and that really was what the end of the relationship was, that the marriage was, was it wasn't necessarily the addiction. It was my, uh, my unwilling to be honest with myself and with her. So that was the, when I talk about, you know, everybody needs all oh, day back in the beginning of the podcast, everybody needs a little bit of pain to experience what that's like. Uh, I didn't learn for 15 years. <laughs> So I sat in 15 years of constant pain, constant self-doubt, constant um, self-sabotage with, with what I wanted. And uh, yeah, once she left me, and it was somebody that I, again, I cared for this, this woman on a, on a level um, that is hard to describe, I realized, I said that I have two choices. Um, I can either kill myself now, which was... Definitely uh, something that I thought about often, uh, or I can change. And I, I remember the exact moment where I was sitting at one of my uh, one of my best friend's house, and I was telling him how I was feeling, and um, I I had no will, you know, no will to to move forward. And he said to me, he said, "Man, you're only at the time I was 31." He was like, "You're only 31." I was pretty, I was actually very successful with my fitness training because at that point I was just doing, you know, fitness transformations and coaching. So it's not like I was hurting for money or anything. It was like, I've seen you do so much with so many people. It was like, when have you done anything for yourself? And I kind of looked at him and I was like, I don't know. I was like, this is, I've never really thought about that. And he was like, well, now you don't have anybody to worry about but yourself. So do something about it. And I did. I woke up the next day. Um, I, I started my meditation practice. I, I reached out to a, a meditation uh, coach 
who, who taught me to meditate, which is a whole other story of, of something that was just transformative. And I just switched. I switched my desire to help others to the desire to help myself with great, great intensity. And that involved uh, seeking out help, something I'd never done before, going to a sex therapist, like what I talked about, uh, helping me understand, you know, why I was the way I was, giving me some physical and scientific explanations to why I had performance anxiety, why I was unable to physically perform. Uh, going to the the anxiety therapist to start to understand, you know, what it was, the the anxiousness and what it means to be anxious and you know, what steps I could start taking to reduce my anxiety. Listen to a whole bunch of podcasts, read books, you know, and the motivator in the beginning was I'm going to change so that she sees me again, so that she doesn't leave me. And then about three or four months into it, after I started to become very okay with being alone, matter of fact, I enjoy it. Um, I started to become very okay with who I was. I started to realize that it wasn't about proving her wrong. It was about proving myself right. And from that moment, um, I, I, that has been my motivation for quite some time now of doing so much inner work and so much, uh, introspection and, and really having the courage to, to go back and objectively and subjectively look at myself and, and realize that none of what I did prior to that time was me. And the difference was, was I didn't feel the pain anymore. And that's how I knew that I was going to be okay. And that's how I also knew that my intuition, my inner voice was my guide to life and is my guide to life. Because every time I don't listen to it, pain follows. But it's very hard to do. It's very hard to stay connected with yourself in this environment. But uh, the more you do, uh, the more people start to come into your life uh, to enrich you, to help you, to, to push you along your journey. And then when you really start to get the passion and when you really start to find your purpose, your life becomes very accelerated in every way possible. So, yeah, that's that's what happened. You know, one of the things that uh, I love that you said is that it wasn't your addiction that was the problem. It was your unwillingness to to talk about it, to share it, to be open with it. Can can you take us a little bit deeper into that statement? Yeah, you know, foundationally, um, you know, we are, uh, as men, we are... Before I before I go into it, Leo, I need to text somebody. I need to stop right now. All right, <laughs> I go you ahead, man. It. Make it happen. I figured you could cut it. Um, I had an appointment at five thirty, but this is too fun. So, <laughs> one second. Um, Okay. So, you know, when, when men specifically, uh, boys were growing up, uh, you know, the, the be a man, you know, this is a, a topic that 
I feel a lot of people speak about now to bring more awareness to this. But, you know, being a man typically meant, you know, that you were in some sort of quote unquote alpha. You you were good at sports. You're good with women, you know, sexual prowess. You know, you, you want to make sure that you don't show weakness. And then as you as I grew up in my own environment and getting into my teens, uh, getting into college, the, it only got you know, compounded because you're around a whole bunch of boys that all think the same thing and tease each other for it. And, you know, the one moment you show weakness, you get made fun of for it. So it, it, it influenced me. It influenced me, one, to not be honest with myself, to be like, yeah, I'm good. Oh, yeah, that girl over there, man, we had fun last night. You know, all the stupid things that really mean nothing now. But at the time, they mean everything. Social acceptance is... Um, probably one of the biggest things that people have to strip down because you realize that society uh, and most people have it wrong anyways. They influence you to think that you should be a certain way that you're not. And uh, that, that behavior is learned at a very young age. And as you get older and as I got older, you know, it, it influenced me to not be real with myself, to not be real with others. Um, even when I was a fitness coach only, you know, I would, people would ask me how my business was going and I would fabricate, Oh, I made so much this year and I did this this year and, you know, all these different things because it was validation for, for me. And, uh, after a while, at least for myself, the lines were muddled. I didn't know what was true and what wasn't right. I, I didn't know what how I was really doing. If you asked me how I was doing, it was always, I'm good or I'm doing well. Awesome. You know, all these different things that just people are subconsciously programmed to say back. So what it did was, is it, it created a lot of uh, tension, uh, a lot of tension with me and my, you know, my relationships, a lot of tension with my relationship with my clients. Um, because being strong was, you know, you want to tell me something's wrong. What's wrong with you? Just follow the plan. Right. You know, so there's, there's these, it, it, it was detrimental to, to every part of my life. And then when this happened and, um, and people started to come out, some very influential people started to come out. I mean, Brene Brown being the champion, you know, of vulnerability and, and watching some of her videos and even watching her videos as a man, watching a woman talking about being vulnerable a lot of it started to make sense. So prior to, you know, this experience where my wife actually, ex-wife chose to leave me, I was already starting to open up a little bit. And it's actually what influenced me to come totally clean to my ex-wife about everything. I lied. You know, this has been a problem. You know, and, and I'll, this is how bad I was dishonest with myself. Um, I remember when, when this was the pivotal moment when um, she, is, she had already chosen to leave and we were leaving the gym together and she grabbed my hand. And I was like, oh, this is nice. You know, we get into the car. And, you know, a pornography addict doesn't care what medium you use. So, of course, my phone was easy access. And unfortunately, it's easy access for a lot of American men. And she had seen in my in-private browsing what I was looking at, because even if it's in private, by the way, guys, if you continually do it over and over again, it'll still be a safe search. <laughs> and uh, she asked me about it, and I lied. And then she showed me my phone, and I still said it wasn't me, with the evidence in front of me. 
And it took me, you know, a couple of more denials before I, before I said, you're right. You know, I started breaking down, started crying. And, uh, yeah. So now I live differently, right? So now I live with, uh, an ability and I call it an ability because it's a superpower. It is a superpower to be able to be totally open and detached from my mistakes, um, from, from who I was. And understanding that, you know, the fact that I know who I was allows me to create who I am. Because if I never knew myself, if I never got to know this part about me, I would still be the same person, lost and, and, and confused and wondering why all these outside forces are preventing me from, from being successful and, and talking about me and, you know, all the things that your brain wants to tell you, so... I think being vulnerable, you know, is, is a superpower that if we could all have, um, we could connect with each other on a deeper level. We could help each other on a deeper level. We could realize that we're not alone. And, and that, honestly, is probably the most important thing if anybody can take away is that you aren't alone. We all are struggling. And, and the most shameful thing that you think um, is that is something that somebody else would probably rival with something that they think is just as shameful. But when you say it to each other, it's not that bad. <laughs> Matter of fact, it brings comfort to each other. You know, it's almost like singing, right? It, if you're a horrible singer, but you uh, are singing a chorus with a thousand other people, it sounds beautiful. Even if each person who's singing in that thousand person chorus is a horrible singer together. It sounds amazing. And it's yes. the same thing with our feelings, with our, with our history, with our life as, as more and more people share that. And that's the power of like going either to a, a therapist or to coaching or to group therapy. When you get to hear other people's stories and you're sharing your stories and now your story doesn't sound as shameful and as as embarrassing and and not that you know those emotions don't serve a purpose but it, 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 like you said you feel less alone when you share your stories and then you realize other people have similar stories yeah i mean absolutely and then like what you said i mean shame and guilt they do serve a purpose but you don't need to sit in it nobody needs to sit in it it's something that is a, a monitor, a, a detector, you know, for your behavior. Um, but a lot of times we get so attached to what was or what even what is and judge ourselves, you know, harshly for for these things when, you know, it's not really the case. It's just the reality that we've created for ourselves. Yeah. You know, you, you mentioned, uh, I mean, to circle back to the beginning, we were talking about bodybuilders and realizing that when bodybuilders are done bodybuilding, that's when they get in trouble. A lot of bodybuilders die between the ages of, uh, I think, 30 and, and 35 or something. It's like a very young age. Like they don't. It's very early. Yeah, yes. They don't they don't they don't see 50 typically uh, is the point. And. What I realize is just like with this quarantine is is not being in the quarantine that's a problem. And, it, and it's not being a bodybuilder. It's the transition 
from your daily routine into the quarantine. It's a transition from being a bodybuilder to then figuring out the next phase of your life. How do you help people with those transitions? How do you help them look at it? How do you help them prepare for it? How do you help them thrive through that? Yeah, that's that's been a struggle because for me, uh, because everybody is perceiving what's happening differently. Now, I can certainly put them into groups of, you know, what's happening, but it, it really it really just starts with the perception of what's happening. So um, there are people who start using finalities in their their words like, you know, I have, you know, if it's going to the gym, you know, they have dumbbells at their house, they have resistance bands at their house, uh, but they can't do it right without, you know, heavy weight. They can't do physical activity without lifting. And, you know, I, I tell them, I was like, well, first you, of course you can't because you're saying you can't. So let's start there. Uh, so I, I work with uh, a tool that you've probably used before, which is framing, right? So we need to frame this a little bit differently in your brain. We need to realize that, you know, just because you don't have a gym doesn't mean that physical activity is not important to you. Because a lot of the people that now we're about three weeks in and I'm actually getting people that are contacting me about training, you know, they're, they're giving me a story, which is I've, I feel like I've lost myself. I feel like I'm losing everything that I worked for and I've got to get out of this. So again, that little bit of pain, right, is now accelerating the desire to change. And, and then the other thing is, is, you know, in our home, and uh, this is a study that I, that I actually read and when I was in high school because my father wanted me to do better on my SAT and my test taking. So there was a study where the students that would uh, study in the same room that they take the test made better test scores. Well, your home is the same thing. Because at home you're used to relaxing and you're used to going home and unwinding and doing nothing, that is the environment that your brain is used to. So when you try and bring physical activity into an environment of relax, it's hard to get into it because you're not in that gym environment. So what can you do? The simple thing is you have to just stop thinking. My, my mantra right now for most everybody is don't think, just do. This is what you do. The more you think about it and the more you negotiate with yourself, the less likely it is that you're going to do it. So use a mindfulness strategy. Use alternate nostril breathing. Use gratitude. Say, I'm grateful for the fact that I get to work out in my home. I'm grateful for the fact that I get to do anything at all right now that I can bring out from my old routine into my home because I can still do it. So using these strategies is just a, a very powerful way of doing it. And then a lot of times when I share what I just shared with you about the test taking, it's an aha moment, right? So knowledge is power. It's like, oh, that's why I feel this way. Rather than beating yourself up for thinking that you are unmotivated and thinking that why can't I get going? No, there's actually <laughs> there's actually a reason that your brain is, is, is in this environment that it's not used to being this way. So, okay, how do we create habits? Well, you create habits by consistently doing something. And that's how a new routine is created. And I know there's, there's talk, 21 days, 30 days, habit, whatever. That's the fallacy of that whole statement, is that when you start putting an end date on some sort of behavior, it, it makes it more pressure. Like it makes you not want to do it even more because you're attached to the outcome. And when you work with the attachment of the outcome, you're not going to work 
at the at the level of performance that you want to do it at. So it's the same thing here. So another one of my advice was like, you know, when this first happened, at least in Austin, Texas, it was like, okay, gyms are shut down for two weeks, uh, and then we'll be back. And I, I instantly, I was like, all right, that's bullshit. You know, this is going to go a little bit longer than that. And then after about three or four days, you know, they're like, oh, we're going to extend it to April 30th. And then everybody who had set that expectation in their head of two weeks was, you know, hit even harder because now they're disappointed. And then now they're like, oh, April 30th. I'm like, y'all need to stop. Stop thinking that way because I promise you, you need to start thinking like this is life now. And once you start saying that this is how this is, I want to keep my health and fitness, you know, as a priority. I want to, if you're doing mindset or inner work, I have more time to do my inner work, to work on my mind. I have more time to be with my family. I can work from home if you have work right now and you're, you're lucky enough to have work. So you have all these things that you had in your former life. You just need to reframe it right into what this is now. So that's kind of been the strategy to help people transition. And so far, it's been what I would consider moderately successful because there's still it's very, very hard for a lot of people to to grasp this concept. Some do and some do it faster than others. And then some are still kind of come around to it. But it's like, how much pain are you going to take? before you hit that moment where you say, I've had enough. But yeah, that's how it's been working. Man, you're absolutely right. As soon as this quarantine hit and, you know, me and my girl, we uh, I'm, I'm at her place. And, you know, I was like, wow, at first, you know, I was like, how long am I going to be here? Because I live in L.A. She lives in San Diego and we didn't want to be away from each other. So we decided uh, to be in San Diego. And and then I just I just told myself, I said, this is it. You're here. You don't have a place in LA. Like I mean, you know, like I'm forwarding mail and things like that. But I just accepted this as the new normal, and 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 I and and not to look backwards, uh, because even when we go back, it, things are going to be different. You know, whatever that oh, oh, means. Yeah. And so to only be thinking about forward and and how do how do I thrive from here forward? You're absolutely right. Well, and, and the other thing is, is, okay, so when we get to go back to freedom, it's going to be a hard transition back. <laughs> that's what I, I, they're like. I can't wait to go back. I'm like, cool. All right. That's great. So let's say it takes two months. And then for two months, if you're one of these people that is having trouble adapting into this new environment, think about what two or, two or maybe even three months of inactivity, eating poorly, not working on yourself and being isolated or feeling isolated is gonna do for you and your being. You're going to most likely slip into a form of depression, a form of self-loathing, a form of you know low-level feelings. And then when we actually get to be released, you're not gonna be ready. You're not gonna to wanna to go outside. Because the other thing that happens is you get set into a new routine because now you're in this new routine of being in the house. So for the people that can adapt quickly, as quickly as possible to this routine, you're also teaching yourself valuable, valuable habits and, and giving yourself valuable insight to how you can transition faster back to the things that we love to do. Now, I do believe there's going to be, you know, if you want to go get a coffee, see your friends, you know, go to the gym, things like that, those are motivating for sure. But it's not going to be as easy as everybody thinks it is. You know, you, you talked about your breakup and your divorce 
and how troubling that was, uh, even to the point where, you know, you were thinking about ending your life. And that's the case for so many people because, you know, at the at one of the root causes of suicidality, uh, one is feeling like a burden, like the world would be better off without us. Uh, but the other part is uh, failed belongingness. Uh, like we don't belong uh, to, a, to a group or to a people. Uh, we don't feel connected to those around us. And, and I, when I was counseling in college, most of my clients, uh, especially uh, uh, college students, college uh, men, boys, that uh, you'd see them attempt uh, uh, after a breakup, like the, the heartbreak is so intense. And we so, you know, because you, you had mentioned social acceptance also is, is like mm-hmm. we really want to be accepted by those who are closest to us is, is part of uh, our needs, is part of our basic needs to feel uh, accepted. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, I think what I've found is really we have social acceptance and then we also have attachment. And attachment, in my opinion, um, if you find yourself in an attached relationship, whether it ends or it remains, uh, you're never going to be happy to the fullest amount because, you know, in this basis and the basis of attachment is, is I need uh, in a relationship somebody else to love me so that I feel love. Um, and that, that's tough. You know, that's a really tough thing because once you have that person or that person rejects you or, or maybe you don't feel the love, right. That you would like to feel from the other person as inevitably as time goes on, you know, the, the, the feeling of infatuation or the, 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 uh, I guess the intensity of the feeling of love starts to decline, uh, that, that is your reliant, and, and then you start getting in your head because I've been there. Why am I not? Uh, is she happy? Right. You know, what am I doing that she's not happy? What 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 can I do for her? Uh, am I not good enough? You know, all these different things start to really get into your being. And this relationship no longer is built on love, but is built on fear because you're afraid of, of losing this person. You're afraid. And once again, if we're, if we're talking about your thoughts, create your reality. You know, if you're afraid of losing somebody, like if you're in a relationship right now, if I'm speaking to somebody that's in a relationship right now and all you're doing is thinking about how you don't want to lose somebody, you're going to lose them. And it's going to be painful for you because you're already, your thoughts become your reality. You're already doing the things, your actions are following this belief inside of you. So I, I've, I've learned in the current relationship that I am in now, and it's completely different from with my ex-wife. That when I start to feel those feelings, because I'm not immune to them, nobody's immune to them, but you have to be aware of them. And once you start to feel those feelings, you can then be open. Again, going back to the vulnerability, be open. If you can be open about these feelings, you can start talking about your partner and you've created that type of relationship for each other. And you have that level of connection and understanding. You don't have to let it fester. Because that's the other thing in relationships is that we get afraid of hurting the other person's feelings. And we mask that and think that that's love. I love her, so I don't want to hurt her. But true love is being honest in every way, even if you know that what you're about to say is hurtful, because you also know that it's irrational. And if you know those things, hurtful, irrational, and you just get it off your chest, 
and you can communicate it in a way to your partner that I know I'm not supposed to think this way, but this is the way that I feel right now. Cause that's always the kicker. Say it's the way that you feel now, the matter of fact, you will have an open line of communication with the other person. So the, the biggest thing that I see is the attachment and, and, and how attachment at its core. And when it's, once it's in that relationship is, is a virus, it's, it's something that just festers. And if you don't take care of it, and even more so, if you don't start looking at your own behaviors, not based off of what they think of you, but what you think of yourself, uh, it's, it's going to be the end of the happiness in that relationship. Yeah, because I think that part of what people don't realize is that, you know, by you not being vulnerable and sharing your all, all the things, uh, how you feel, uh, the, the different thoughts, the things you think might hurt them. Uh, two things happen. One is the the other person starts to sense that you're holding something back. So they start to hold back. It, it creates this weird type of communication, uh, stunted almost, uh, between you two. And then also you start to pull back. So mm-hmm. is so th- th- this what really is happening is you were afraid of losing them when it's you that's slowly building the wall around you by not uh, sharing and being honest and being vulnerable. But, but we don't think of it as us pulling away. We think of it as I don't want them to pull away, but, but they both start to happen simultaneously. Uh, and, but, uh, but we don't see our part in it. Yeah, there's a really um, interesting study, and are you familiar with Dr. Joe Dispenza? I feel like everybody is at this point, but do you know him? I do not. Okay, this this guy. Uh, Check him out, because uh, he is on the forefront of of truly uh, healing people's physical ailments with a form of meditation. I mean, this guy has cured somebody who was blind uh, and gave them sight with this this form of meditation. And I'm, I've only done um, outside looking in type of uh, studies and, and watching what he's doing. I haven't experienced for myself. Um, but this, what he does is he's neuro neurobiologist or he's a doctor as well, um, and he's studied basically the emotional frequencies that are given off um, that can be felt by another human being. So. Uh, they've gotten to the point where they can measure uh, emotion and the energy that the emotion gives off outside of the physical human body. So when you give off, for instance, when you feel love, when you feel that emotion, it gives off a, a radius of six feet outside of the physical body. So for instance, you and your, your girl or anybody, especially at the beginning of a relationship, when you feel so strongly for this person and the, you can feel it in the air, you don't have to touch, you can feel it with each other. So, uh, this is what's happening is that literally the, the, each person is emitting this emotional frequency outside the body. Now on the other end of the spectrum, shame, guilt, they do not project outside of the body at all. So, from my view of this, and this is my interpretation of, of, of what this is, when somebody says to another person that, or especially your partner, that I feel like you have walls up 
right? There's walls. I don't, I can't feel you anymore. A lot of times it's not that there's a wall up. It's actually that they are not projecting an emotion that can be felt by you outside of their body. So that, that's been very interesting to just, again, on the outside, watching the research and watching the things that he's doing. And it was a huge way for me to realize when I'm not connecting with somebody or especially somebody I love, a lot of times it's because I'm feeling an emotion that's not allowing me to connect. And that would be shame, guilt, apathy, any of these other emotions that just do not actually give off an emotional frequency of connection, like love or happiness or joy. So it's really interesting stuff. Wow, I never knew that. I'm, I'm going to check that guy out. I just uh, sent him a message to see if we can get him on the uh, on the podcast. That uh, Yeah, that dude is amazing. I, I, again, he's, he's got all the... Um, all the, all the, the study and the, the education and everything. And he was even a normal, you know, Western type of doctor brought in Eastern philosophies and then just used, brought, brought science to Eastern philosophy, which is really cool to see. Uh, Zach Blakeney, is there anything that we haven't discussed that you feel like listeners need <laughs> to know and, and regarding how to optimize their mindset and optimize their fitness. I know we didn't talk too much about sure. food and nutrition. Uh, so can you briefly touch on that aspect? Yeah. Uh, you know, food is your fuel. What you choose to fuel yourself with is, is how you're going to perform. Uh, so, you know, I use this analogy all the time. You know, if you want to perform like an F1 race car, and you're putting unleaded gasoline into this car, it's either not going to run or it's going to not run very well. And uh, most of our society, unfortunately, because we are exposed to every processed food imaginable on every street corner imaginable, uh, we're just not eating uh, the foods that our stomach is meant to eat. We're not eating the things that we're meant to digest. We are not eating enough. Uh, most of the time we're, we're, you know, maybe eating two or three times a day. And even then the calories that we're ingesting are not good quality calories. So a lot of times we sit in brain frog. Um, we don't have our critical thinking skills. Um, we get frustrated because it's even quote unquote hard to think. Uh, and these foods also, they cause brain inflammation, you know, simple carbohydrates, processed, uh, food, they, they cause brain inflammation. And when your brain is inflamed, you, you can't think at the highest level. And it actually triggers an emotional response um, that can stimulate anxiety and depression. So another thing I say is the foods you ingest are making you depressed. So if you're feeling this way, start to look at the foods that you're eating because the, we, we, there's just so much studies out now that food heals the body. And another really cool thing that I employ with my clients is a, uh, it's called Viome uh, with a V and you can go to the website, www.viome.com. And it's a gut microbial intelligence test. It's super cool. Um, they, they send out a, a testing kit to you. You got to take a little bit of your, your poop <laughs> onto a little thing and then send it off to them. And they actually give you the exact foods that your microbiome, which is the microbials in your stomach, are able to digest. And what's really interesting about this is that when you look at the standard American, you know, nutrition, health nutrition, food groups and everything, you know, you know, white potato, sweet potato, uh, lean meats, veggies, you know, all these things are classified as being healthy foods. But then 
each person's microbiome might not be able to digest, for instance, broccoli. I don't know if this is something that happens to you. It happens to me. If I eat broccoli, I get very gassy and, and bloated. And even though it's a healthy food, it's not actually healthy for my body. So what Viome does is they spit you back all the foods that are your quote-unquote superfoods, and then they have your foods you should avoid and then foods you should minimize. And surprisingly enough for me, some of the foods that I love the most, <laughs> unfortunately, were all the ones I should avoid, like tomatoes, red peppers, coffee for me. I don't have the microbiome to digest coffee efficiently. And within the microbiome, you have all these microbials that have, and I don't know the numbers here, so I'm just going to use something as a, a way of relation. You know, the human, you know, humans, we have like 23 billion strands of DNA, somewhere thing around there. You have something like 100 billion microbials in your stomach, all with uh, 9 billion different strands of DNA. So what they're finding is, is that the foods that we're ingesting are morphing the DNA, the microbials, which then are more prevalent than our own human DNA. It changes the DNA of the human being from the microbials, and that's what's causing all these chronic diseases for Americans. Uh, Alzheimer's, type 2 diabetes, heart disease, all stimulating from the foods that we're eating. So not only are the foods killing us, right? but if you want to perform at your highest level, and you want to have the energy to perform at your highest level, it's also detrimental in that regard. And then let's go to the other end of the mood. It's going to affect your mood negatively. So there's just more of an importance now than ever, especially in this environment right now where uh, we're seeing our suicide rates start to increase because of what's happening right now. People are losing their jobs. People are isolated. People feel alone. And then, then what do we do when we feel depressed? We stress eat. We go out and we get, you know, the the fast food burger and the pint of ice cream. And then that makes us that it's a cycle and it's a downward spiral uh, for your health, both mentally and physically. With that, uh, if I go on the positive side, one of the best diets you can have or, or adopt if you are depressed or you are anxious is what's called the Mediterranean diet, where um, more omega-3 fatty acids um, from maybe avocado or extra virgin olive oil, they actually stimulate the, the, the release of dopamine and serotonin when you eat these foods. Um, and lower carbohydrate diets, diets will uh, reduce your brain inflammation as well. So there's actually scientifically a diet that helps most when somebody is feeling uh, depressed or anxious. So this is a long thing about nutrition, but you can see how intricate, if you want to perform optimally, there is your diet, there is the exercise, and then there's the inner work and the mindset. And it sounds exhausting, and it is for somebody that's starting to start from nothing, from going from nothing. And my biggest recommendation leaving this is, is start with one. Start with one thing and focus on becoming very good at that one thing and then move to the next thing and focus really good a bit being the next thing, make it a habit. And that's what I do with all of my clients. I don't throw the kitchen sink at them. I just give them a little bit at a time. And let's say putting a percentage on it, you, you know, have five things that you want to work on. And, and you say, that's okay, 100% is happiness. Well, if I can make you happy in 20% of that area, and then 40%, and then 60%, and then normally by that time, you've built the mental strength, and you've built the capacity to want to grow, that I don't even have to teach you how to do the rest of it. So that's that's my advice. I love it, Zach. Um, and you know, 
Uh, even if if you're listening and you're like, man, this is all overwhelming. I have to do the Mediterranean <laughs> diet. I got to breathe out my nostrils. I got to meditate. <laughs> like all these things, all all these things that that I practice and that we practice uh, are habits and routines and rituals that have been built up over years and decades. This is I, I started meditating when I was in college when I was. Uh, 19 off and on for so many years and then years without ever meditating and then back on again and back off and playing with my nutrition for so many years off and on and my workouts have evolved and changed and transformed always tweaking so uh and in the inner work and the journaling that's something i remember my high school teachers would encourage us to do and I always thought it was useless. I, I didn't understand it and I would I would refuse to do it and thought it was something that only girls did. And now as now that I'm forty four, I see so much value in writing down my thoughts and ideas and feelings and emotions and goals and intentions and uh things that bother me and things that I'm excited for. So my point is is just recognize that it, this is not about you getting this all in today or tomorrow. This is just about being willing, right? I like that word, just having a willingness to to nudge the ball forward a little bit more in your self-care towards your optimization so that so that we can all thrive together, right? It's about that upward trend. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Zach. Man, is there anything that that we haven't talked about? Any stone un, uncovered? Any any nook and cranny we didn't get into? Did we did we leave dust somewhere up up in the rafters or something? Do we need? To, <laughs> did we go up in an attic? Did we clean it all out? Did we get all the boxes, Zach? What's going on? I think so, man. I, th- I think I'd rather just reiterate something that I said somewhere in this uh, in this amazing issue because I've had uh, probably one of the best times of my life talking to somebody. So thank you, Leo. Um, this is something I want to leave everybody with. Very simple. Your thoughts are not you. Keep that as a foundation every single time you find yourself in a space in which you don't like. Maybe you're spiraling. Maybe things are happening around you that are influencing your thoughts to start to think in fear and and anxiety and stress. Um, They're not you, and you always have a choice. Zach, Blakeney, thank you. Plug all your things, man. Everything. Plug it all. Uh, you can find me. Uh, the website is is www.super-givers.com. Uh, we have two Instagrams. We have my personal one, at Zach Blakeney, and then at Super Givers Academy. Uh, LinkedIn, Zach Blakeney. Matter of fact, just use my name for all the social media sites. Uh, you can find me there. Uh, and if anybody is at this time and I'm doing, uh, some free mindset trainings, uh, Wednesday at eight 30 through zoom. If you're interested in doing that, you hear this, shoot me a DM. I'll shoot you the link. Um, there's no reason that any of us have to, to fight through this alone. So find me, let's talk. I would love to connect with you. Thank you all for tuning into another episode of before you kill yourself. Remember this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help. And if you need one-on-one coaching, go to uh, thrivewithleo.com, thrivewithleo.com. Zach Blakeney, I ask this of all my guests. 
Because always imagine that there's one person who's listening in who is on the precipice of ending their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them? What's happening right now to you and how you feel right now is not actually how it is or how it will be. And no matter if you feel like you don't have control, you do. And again, your thoughts are not you. Zach Blakeney, thank you for being a part of this. Thank you all for listening and rating it five stars and sharing it with your friends. I'm forever grateful. We will talk to you soon. Peace.